In this series of great feasts of the Bible, we begin with the Passover. This is number one of three. First, let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we beseech thee that in this sermon we shall be given such a vision of the cross of Jesus that we shall never forget thy redeeming love. And we ask it in his name. Amen. We have two very important texts that ought to be memorized. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 1 John 1, 29. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I trust that when we are through with this message today, that these two texts will become very personal so that we can say, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for me. For behold, the Lamb of God has taken away my sin. The precious atonement of Jesus, as portrayed by the Passover, was not some afterthought or something that came by chance. The sacrifice of God's Son was foreseen by deity long before the world came into existence. The atonement was planned in every detail, to the very year, the month, the day, the hour, and the moment. The life of Christ on earth was laid out from birth to the cross before he ever came to this world. But more than this was entailed in the atonement. God chose to schedule events from Eden to the cross. This leaves no possible room for doubt as to its divine purpose. I shall never forget my 13 years in the General Conference. My work was scheduled for weeks, months, and sometimes even years ahead. In fact, I lived by my appointment book. Sometimes I had appointments two years in advance. And so, likewise, Christ had a schedule to meet. Not only a time to be born in Bethlehem, not only a time to die on the cross of Calvary, but also, there is an exact time for Christ's second coming and an exact time for his third coming at the close of the millennium. Yes, Christ had a schedule to meet. Did you ever note his words to his mother found in John 2, verse 4? I quote, Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? And then these words, 
Mine hour is not yet come. In the book Desire of Ages, page 147, those words, quote, Mine hour is not yet come, point to the fact that every act of Christ's life on earth was in fulfillment of the plan that had existed from the days of eternity. Before he came to earth, the plan lay out before him perfect in all of its details. His last Passover supper spent on this earth was scheduled to the exact day. In Matthew 28:18, we read, And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The master saith, and note the words again, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. Perhaps you have never thought of it before, but the reason Christ went to the garden after spending the Passover with his disciples was that this too had been scheduled, for it was here that he was to be betrayed. Matthew 26:45. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, and again notice the words, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus knew the time had come. Just as the Passover commemorated the deliverance from Egypt, so Christ understood the Passover lamb pointed to his coming sacrifice. Let me refresh our memories of what happened in Egypt. Even the Passover was scheduled in the time frame of God, for it took place exactly on the day that it was planned. You'll recall in Genesis 15 that Abraham was told that his children would go into Egypt for some 430 years as slaves. And then we read in Exodus 12, 40 and 41, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. Of course, it required some drastic judgments from God to bring it to pass on the exact day, such as the world had never seen before, water being turned to blood, plagues of frogs, plagues of lice, plagues of boils, plagues of hail, plagues, plagues of darkness, and finally, a never-to-be-forgotten night. For in the land of Goshen, the first Passover was held. Each family met together to kill a lamb, 
and sprinkled its blood on their doorposts. The lamb was to be roasted and eaten, just as the angel of death passed over each home at midnight. While in the land of Egypt, the same angel of death struck in every home, including the king's palace. Every firstborn was slain of man and beast. Never was there such a cry of death that struck every family of a whole nation at the same moment. Israel was commanded to leave immediately, and it happened at the precise time which God had predicted of some 430 years that was to take place. And now Israel was commanded to keep the Passover when they should reach the promised land of Cana as a memorial of this mighty deliverance by the hand of God. This is why we find the Passover being kept in the day of Christ. Let your mind with me grasp the first visit of the boy Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem to keep his first Passover. He is now 12 years old. His mother has taught him every detail of the Passover history. And now, according to Jewish custom, he is old enough to participate. Now watch with me as we look at his countenance. He is watching the white-robed priests. Look closely at his face as he sees the bleeding victim on the altar. Watch him as he looks upon the cloud of incense ascending heavenward. Suddenly, he discovers a sublime truth, for he understands that every act of his life is bound up in what the priest has done with that little lamb. New impulses awaken within him. God is his teacher. Like a sudden clap of thunder, his mission in life opens up before him. Silently, absorbed in divine thoughts, he studies the sin problem as never before. Finally, the moment arrives. He sees himself as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Immediately, there is a complete change in this boy of twelve in his outlook. His meekness as a willing chi child has changed to an awareness of a higher responsibility. He addresses his parents, Joseph and Mary, in a remarkable new manner. Listen, Luke 2.49. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Divine inspiration tells us that as he spoke these words, he pointed his finger heavenward to the astonishment of his earthly parents. At this young age, 
he is now totally aware of his divine father. His purpose in life has now become clear as crystal. Just as God delivered his people from the slavery of Egypt, so Jesus is to deliver his people from the slavery of sin. He, the Son of the Mighty God, is to become the Passover Lamb by giving his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. Every moment of his life from then on was dedicated in preparation for the moment of sacrifice. This demanded total surrender to God's will and a full commitment to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Every day of his life was a 24-hour battle with Satan. I read in Desire of Ages 71, Satan was unwearied in his efforts to overcome the child of Nazareth. From his earliest years, Jesus was guarded by heavenly angels, yet his life was one long struggle against the powers of darkness that there should be upon this earth one life free from defilement of evil was an offense and a perplexity to the prince of darkness. He left no means untried to ensnare Jesus. No child of humanity will ever be called to live a holy life amid so fierce a conflict with temptation as was our Savior. You and I may think that we have a hard time in this battle with Satan, but you and I, in our struggle with evil, do not commence to meet the battle as he did. The Son of God experienced temptations 1,000 times greater than you and I. Listen. I am quoting from The High Calling, page 59. You have not a difficulty that did not press with equal weight upon him. Not a sorrow that his heart has not experienced. His feelings could be hurt with neglect, with indifference of professed friends as easily as yours. Is your path thorny? Christ was so in a tenfold sense. And friend, that's a thousand times. Are you distressed? So was he. How well fitted was Christ to be an example? What was his secret of power in overcoming? Desire of ages put page 24. If we had to bear anything which Jesus did not endure, then upon this point Satan would represent the power of God as insufficient for us. Therefore, Jesus was, quote, in all points tempted like as we are, Hebrews 4.15, unquote.
He endured every trial to which we are subject. And he exercised in his own behalf no power that is not freely offered to us. As a man, he met temptation and overcame in the strength given him from God. And so it can be with you and me. In Mount of Blessings, page 21, to Jesus who emptied himself for the salvation of lost humanity, the Holy Spirit was given without measure. So, it will be given to every follower of Christ when the whole heart is surrendered for his indwelling. Our Lord himself has given the command, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. This is exactly what Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness of life in him. And again, Peter admonishes us with the same encouragement. I am reading Second Peter 2, 3, and 4. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellency, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion, and become, and note, partakers of divine nature. Oh, how we should praise God for what he has made possible for us. But I must get back to my story. After the baptism of Jesus, three years of public ministry was scheduled in which Jesus was to reveal God's love by miracles and by teachings. This accomplished, he knew his time had finally come to attend the last Passover of his life here on this earth. Matthew 26, 18. So he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. The final crisis had finally arrived. The whole universe was at stake, not just the Jewish nation. This is so serious that Christ must find a place to be alone with his Father. For as a man, he can do nothing without God's help. So he chooses the Garden of Gethsemane. As he enters the garden, he becomes sad and silent. 
his form begins to sway as if he is about to fall. Every step is labored. He groans aloud, for he is under a terrible burden. The sins of all the world is being placed upon him. Twice his companions prevent him from falling to the ground. Listen as he cries. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. His frame convulses with anguish as he falls prostrate to the cold ground. He is overpowered with fear as God removes his presence from him because of the sins of the world which have been placed upon him. The gulf of sin becomes so wide, so black, so deep that his spirit shudders before it. He clings convulsively to the ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn still further from God. His convulsed lips wail that bitter cry, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And friend, if you are in tune with God, these thoughts will break your heart and bring tears to your eyes. The undeniable fact is this, that sin and God cannot dwell together. In this struggle, eternal separation from God was possible. And speaking of Satan in Desire of Ages 687, everything was at stake with him. If he failed here, his hope of mastery was lost. The kingdoms of the world would become Christ. He himself would be overthrown and cast out. But if Christ could be overcome, the earth would become Satan's kingdom and the human race would be forever in his power. With the issue of the conflict before him, Christ's soul was filled with the dread of separation from God. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation would be eternal. He would be identified with Satan's kingdom and would nevermore be one with God." Unquote. What a struggle! Satan painted a picture that would discourage the strongest heart. He points to the ingratitude of man, of the people, his people, that will reject him and how his very own church will seek to destroy him. Even his disciples will forsake him, and one of them will betray him. 
In Desire of Ages 687, I read, All will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan, this pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. Its measure was the guilt of his nation, of his accusers and betrayer, the guilt of a world lying in wickedness. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. You see, it was like a motor continually forcing air into a compressor, pumping away, pumping away until it explodes. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. In Spirit of Prophecy 3, page 99, he sees the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish under the Father's displeasure. He sees the power of sin and the utter helplessness of man to save himself, the woes and the lamentations of a doomed world arise before him. He beholds its impending fate, and thank God it says, his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood, that perishing millions through him may gain everlasting life. He left the courts of heaven where all was purity, happiness, and glory to save one lost sheep, the world that had fallen by transgression, and he will not turn from the mission he has chosen. He will reach to the very depths of misery to rescue a lost and ruined race. Oh, praise his name. Having made this decision, he falls in a dying condition to the earth. Had it not been for an angel which was sent from heaven to support him, he would have died then and there. But the angel enabled our Savior to drink the cup. Christ now stands in the sinner's place, forsaken by God and forsaken by man. Talk about faith. In becoming the Passover lamb, you see, he cannot see beyond the tomb. In Desire of Ages 753, the Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God 
that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin, bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute, that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. What a price! What a cost for our salvation! You know, there are some that cringe at the thought of taking the life of a little innocent lamb. But suddenly we see a similarity of the Passover lamb in the crucifixion. John 19.32 Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. They brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Now compare this with the Passover lamb as I read in Numbers 9.12. They shall leave none of it until the morning nor break any bone of it according to all the ordinances of the Passover. Christ well knew that his hour had come. He knew that the Passover lamb would be offered in the temple at the precise moment that he would die on Calvary's cross. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he sees it all. The priest lifting the knife as he holds the lamb on the altar. Suddenly, there is a rending noise as the veil of the temple is torn open from top to bottom, thus opening the way into the heavenly sanctuary in which the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, will mediate for us before God the Father. Reading Desire of Ages 757, all is terror and confusion. The priest is about to slay the victim, but the knife drops from his nerveless hand and the lamb escapes. Type has met antitype in the death of God's Son. The great sacrifice has been made the way into the holiest is laid open. A new and living way is prepared for all. No longer need sinful, sorrowing humanity await the coming of the high priest. Henceforth, the Savior was to officiate as priest and advocate in the heaven of heaven. What an atonement Jesus made on Calvary for our sin. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our text. Christ, our Passover, 
is sacrificed for us. It is one thing to believe this happened for us, but in reality, more than belief is necessary. There are actions of response required of each of us. Notice what it says in Patriarchs and Prophets 277. It is not enough that the Paschal Lamb be slain. Its blood must be sprinkled upon the doorposts. So the merits of Christ's blood must be applied to the soul. We must believe not only that he died for the world, but that he died for us individually. We must appropriate to ourselves the virtue of the atoning sacrifice. That is why I said at the beginning, we must come to the place where we know of the experience that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for me. Speaking individually. And what of the hyssop used to sprinkle the blood? This was the symbol of purification. It was also used by the priest to cleanse a leper and those defiled by contact with the dead. The psalmist's prayer holds great significance. I read in Psalms 51.7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The lamb was also to be prepared whole, for not a bone was to be broken in the Lamb of God. This represented the completeness of Christ's sacrifice. A full ransom was to be paid. And furthermore, the flesh of the Paschal Lamb was to be eaten. Patriarchs and Prophets 277. It is not enough even that we believe on Christ for the forgiveness of sin. We must by faith be constantly receiving spiritual strength and nourishment from Him through His Word, said Christ. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. John 6, 53 and 4. And to explain this meaning, he said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. What does this mean? Patriarchs and Prophets 278. The followers of Christ must be partakers of his experience. We must receive and assimilate the word of God so that it should become the motive power of our life and action. By the power of Christ, we must be changed into his likeness and reflect the divine attributes. And there was another lesson 
we would do well to recognize. The lamb was to be eaten with bitter herbs. Patriarchs and Prophets 278. The lamb was to be eaten with bitter herbs as pointing back to the bitterness of the bondage in Egypt. So, when we feed upon Christ, it should be with contrition of heart because of our sins. When we truly, truly realize that Christ died for us, for our past sins, how can we crucify him afresh? And what of the unleavened bread? This too was important. Patriarchs and Prophets 278. The use of unleavened bread also was significant. It was expressly enjoined in the law of the Passover. And no leaven should be found in their homes during the feast. In like manner, the leaven of sin must be put away from all who would receive life and nourishment from Christ. I think I better read that again. In like manner, the leaven of sin must be put away from all who would receive life and nourishment from Christ. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Oh, brother and sister, and to think we have men of the cloth today who are teaching us that we may sin until Jesus comes, God forbid. Consider the blood that was sprinkled on the doorposts. This was a sign to show that the family was completely separated from Egypt. They must show their faith in the deliverance to be accomplished. They must separate themselves and their family from the Egyptians and gather within their own dwelling. This is the same message that has been given to the remnant today. Come out from among them and be ye separate. In Patriarchs and Prophets 278 are these startling words. Had the Israelites disregarded in any particular the directions given them, had they neglected to separate their children from the Egyptians, had they slain the lamb but failed to strike the doorposts with the blood, or had any gone out of their houses, they would not have been secure. They might have honestly believed that they had done all that was necessary, but their sincerity could not have saved them. Oh, what a lesson. All who fail to heed the Lord's directions would lose their firstborn by the hand of the destroyer. In conclusion, we discover the relationship between faith and works. 
the atonement Christ provided for each of us on the cross of Calvary demands not only belief, but obedience. Once more, Patriarchs and Prophets 279. By obedience, the people were to give evidence of their faith. So all who hope to be saved by the merits of the blood of Christ should realize that they themselves have something to do in securing their salvation. While it is Christ only that can redeem us from the penalty of transgression, we are to turn from sin to obedience. Man is to be saved by faith, not by works. Yet, his faith must be shown by his works. God has given his Son to die as a propitiation for sin. He has manifested the light of truth, the way of life. He has given facilities, ordinances, and privileges. And now, man must cooperate with these saving agencies. He must appreciate and use the help that God has provided. Believe and obey are the divine requirements. So thus, our two texts come loud and clear. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover is sacri was sacrificed for us. And 1 John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. I trust after hearing this, that you have rededicated your heart and you can now say, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for me. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away my sin. Let us pray. O oh God, may we never forget the atoning sacrifice that was made on Calvary for us. Imprint this scene so deeply upon our hearts that we shall never forget that Christ has taken away our sins. And for this, we praise thy name. Amen. Oh, walk the shell of a man.
In the love. 